What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. I am delighted to be joined by Jorge Martí. He's the Secretariat of Hensouth, Venezuela. Thank you so much for being with us, Jorge. It's a pleasure, as always. One thing I, I think that is constant is the plight of workers worldwide and our ideals of what you know worker solidarity could be like. So perhaps we can begin our conversation with what does May 1st uh, still signify for Latin America, and in particular, the, the region of South America. Yes, well, contrary to, to what some people try to say today, uh, May 1st was created as a day of struggle. Uh, it's a day of struggle for workers' rights across the world, which was uh, originally created in order to commemorate the Chicago martyrs, uh, the five Chicago anarchists who were uh, tried and convicted on uh, charges of terrorism, and, and they were condemned for, for that, and uh, were hanged. So, so this is what we are commemorating, and uh, this is not a day of celebration so much, but, but rather a day of struggle. The workers across the world are still uh, oppressed by the, by the capitalists in Latin America and beyond, and so this continues to be a, an important day of, of struggle. Uh, and particularly in these conditions that we live in now, the, the conditions of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which has hit the workers particularly badly in many countries. Workers cannot uh, afford to self-isolate at home, even if they have symptoms. They have to continue working. In other countries, the sources of work have dried up, particularly I mean, many Latin American countries. 40 or 50 or even 60 percent of the workforce works in the informal sector, many of them just um, selling wares on the streets. And, and, and th these sources of income have now dried up because of the pandemic. So it's a really difficult situation this, this year. But nevertheless, there were important uh, May Day marches and struggles across the, the continent, including in, in Colombia, where there was a national strike that started on the 28th of April and is continuing to this day in Chile, where there was uh, also a general strike on uh, the last day of April, on the 30th of April, and then big demonstrations on the 1st of May, and in many other countries. In, in others, like for instance in Argentina or in Brazil, where the pandemic is at its peak, there were no uh, public demonstrations. Uh, it wasn't safe 
for people to meet together in the streets. Uh, but there were also uh, online events, uh, virtual uh, demonstrations or public meetings online in order to mark this day of workers' uh, workers' struggle. You know, few people think of countries like Peru, you know, or Ecuador or, you know, Colombia, for instance. What are some of the stories that we need to remember, you know, about our region and about the people in the not just in struggle, but about the ways that we resiliently fight back imperialism and claim back our right to self-determination. Yes, I, I would say the situation now is quite interesting because just before the pandemic started, uh, in, the, in the second half of 2019, there were big movements across Latin America. There was the ongoing uh, mass movement in in Haiti against the illegitimate um, government of Moise Jovenel. There was also an uprising in Ecuador in October 2019 against the government of Lenin Moreno, a government that had been introducing a, an IMF-inspired austerity package against the workers and peasants. And that uh, uprising went very far. The government had to flee the capital and they were very close to overthrowing the, the government. Uh, then there was the movement in Chile that we've all heard of, which went on for about three months, October, November, December 2019, uh, which started, was sparked by an increase in the price of uh, public transportation fares in Santiago, the capital, but it became a national uprising against the whole system again. The main demand was that Piñera, the government, the, the president, should go. And then we also had the national strike in uh, Colombia at the end of November 2019, which was supposed to be a one-day protest, but then uh, it became like a whole week of mass protests on the streets against the, the government of Duque. Uh, so this is the situation that we had just before the pandemic. Now, when the pandemic struck at the beginning of 2020, this, this whole movement, this wave of uh, uprisings and insurrections was stopped temporarily who were obviously shocked by, by, the, by, the, by the pandemic. Uh, in many countries, there were measures of uh, quarantine. People had to stay home. There were curfews and so on. And so for a period of time, the, this whole process was paused, if, if you want. Uh, but now I think that what we are seeing is, despite the fact that the pandemic is, is still uh, hitting the whole of Latin America very, in a very harsh way, in countries like Peru, Ecuador, Brazil, above all, but also Paraguay, Argentina. Uh, what we have seen is that despite the pandemic, people are now uh, forced to come out on the streets. There's been these big mobilizations in Chile, uh, big, this movement that's ongoing now in uh, Colombia, a national strike that's lasted for over a week. Uh, and, and, and movements like that, there was a big uprising in, uh, in Paraguay in March, which was directly linked to the question of the pandemic, when the government was completely unable to provide for oxygen, uh, ICU beds, and so on. So what we are seeing is the, the retying of the knot the, of the Red October, if you want, Red October 20. 2019, people have no other alternative but to come out and, and, and fight because uh, the situation is, is, is terrible. Uh, with the combination of the COVID-19 pandemic and the capitalist uh, crisis, and in many countries, for instance, in Peru, in Ecuador, in Colombia, there have been big scandals where 
politicians and wealthy people, businessmen, have had access to the vaccine, jumping the queue, when the majority of the population has no access at all. Uh, and this question of access to the vaccine, uh, access to healthcare, is now becoming one uh, terrain of struggle across the whole uh, continent. And we see how, yes, the, the wealthy capitalist countries, the imperialist countries around the world uh, are going very fast or relatively fast with the vaccination efforts in the US, in, in Britain, not, not so much in Europe. But most of these countries of uh, Latin America, where the pandemic has, has had a massive impact, they're, they're way behind. And, and one of the reasons is because the, the advanced capitalist countries are mono, monopolizing access to vaccines. Uh, and again, we see here the question of capitalism. Uh, capitalism means that those who have money can have access to the means to protect their lives. And those who don't have money, uh, particularly these countries, uh, and these countries are not poor, they're very wealthy countries, in wealthy natural resources and in, in minerals and so on, but they are poor because they've been impoverished by imperialist domination. So they, they don't have the necessary money, uh, access to funding to, to buy or purchase these uh, vaccines, and therefore people are dying because of that. So, so you can see directly the link between the existence of the capitalist system, private prof profit motive, of the big multinational companies and the imperialist countries and, and the fact that uh, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people are dying in, in places like uh, Latin America. We're going to have continuous crisis if we continue to make people so uh, vulnerable by poor housing, poor employment, hunger wages, all of those things compromise not just our health but our immunity to crisis. On that vein, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know, what we see then, despite all these attacks, despite all this, you know, we are going to an election in Peru. And I wonder if you could comment on how you see this unfolding and um, the significance of, you know, this election for us in, in Latin America. No, it's not well known that in November there was a big movement in uh, Peru. Uh, there was an attempt by the government, by, by the Congress, sorry, to remove the president on uh, allegations of corruption. And this led to a mass movement on the streets, not because people were in favor of President Vizcarra, who was being removed, but because they knew that, uh, in fact, those who were removing Vizcarra from power were as corrupt or even more corrupt than, uh, than him. And the whole thing was a farce. So there was a big movement that lasted for about a week, and uh, the government was scrambling, the Congress was scrambling to find the new president. They had three or four during the week. Uh, and finally, they managed to calm the situation. But th that movement reflected uh, deep-seated anger, uh, a very uh, deep-seated opposition to all bourgeois politicians. You have to think that of the last five presidents of Peru, they've all been indicted on corruption uh, charges. One of them committed suicide in order not to face trial. Another one is in the United States waiting for extradition for an extradition request. Another one is in uh, jail. So, I mean, the whole situation is, uh, is uh, an example of the, of the rottenness of bourgeois politics after 20 or 30 years of this so-called 
neoliberalism that uh, has made a lot of people in in Peru very rich. Uh, a small minority at the top have become very rich, but the masses in general have become uh, impoverished, and the country has been completely open through privatizations uh, to to foreign uh, multinationals and imperialist companies in the fields of uh, energy, mining, water, and, and so on. And so that, that November movement was an early indication that something very deep was starting to change in, in Peru. And now this was then reflected in the election. The election uh, was a presidential and national congress election. Uh, the first round of the presidential election was very fractured. The whole political scenario was very fractured. There were five or six different candidates uh, getting more or less the same results in the opinion polls. But finally, two of them went to the second round. But the one that came first with 19% of the vote is, is a man called Pedro Castillo, uh, who will now face in the second round of the election uh, Keiko Fujimori, who is the daughter of, uh, of uh, Fujimori, the, the one who was the, the dictator of, um, of Peru in the 1990s and that uh, uh, led the, the dirty war against the guerrilla movement at that time. So this is a very polarized election. And who, who is this Pedro Castillo? Pedro Castillo is a, is a teacher, is a trade unionist in, in the teachers uh, union. And he was the leader of a very radical teachers strike that took place in 2017. And this strike was led by a committee of struggle, uh, delegates uh, elected by the different regions, uh, and Pedro Castillo was the spokesperson. The, the strike was also against the trade union leadership, which didn't want this strike to go ahead, uh, and against the, the education ministry. The strike ended up in a, in a partial victory, and Pedro Castillo became very popular as a result of this. He is the candidate of a party called Peru Libre. It is a peculiar formation that describes itself as a Marxist, uh, Mariategist organization after after the name of, of Jose Carlos Mariategui, the founder of the trade unions in Peru and founder of the Communist Party. And, uh, and it has a program that I, I will say is, is not a full socialist program, but it has, contains very, many very advanced elements. For instance, he says that the contracts will, with the multinationals will all be reviewed. At, the pres at present, the multinationals take 80% of the profits while, while they pay 20% to the state, and he says it should be the other way around. The state should should take 80%. And, and he also said, if the multinationals do not want to accept this renegotiation, then we'll expropriate them, we'll nationalize them, because th these minerals are Peruvian. And, and the main slogan of his campaign was, no more poor people in a rich country, which I think is very, is very telling, it's a very advanced uh, slogan. He also said that he will only take his wage as a teacher. He will not take a presidential wage. He will take his wage as a teacher. He will reduce the wage of the Congress representatives. And he will also dismiss the constitutional tribunal, which is riddled with corruption. And all other public powers will be now elected directly by the people. So, I mean, it's, it's a very advanced nationalist, very progressive uh, program. And he says he's going to do this so that the budget for education can increase, the budget for healthcare can increase so to benefit the people in general. And um, his party is more or less modeled on, on the experience of uh, Ecuador and the Correa and uh, Bolivia and uh, 
Evo Morales. Now there are other parts of his program which are not progressive, and I think it's, it needs to be mentioned. For instance, he is against same-sex uh, marriage. He has a very uh, unclear position on the question of abortion rights, and uh, and this is not good. It's not good at all. Is is not is not progressive. Uh, but it needs to be understand, understood in the context of Peru being under the very strong influence of, uh, of uh, fundamentalist churches uh, and the penetration of uh, evangelist uh, church organizations and so on. Nevertheless, these prejudices, reactionary prejudices, should, should be combated, but, but they should not distract us fr from the main reason people are voting for him. It's not because of this. Is because because they want fundamental change and they uh, connect with this idea of no no poor people in a rich country. Uh, now, in the opinion polls, he has 40 percent, while Keiko Fujimori is down at 20 percent. Uh, Pedro Castillo has the advantage in all of the provinces of the country. In the rural areas, he has 60 percent of the vote. In the south of the country, it has 45, 50, 55 percent of the vote, with the exception of Lima. In uh, Lima, where, where the bulk of the middle and upper class is concentrated, he, he is second to Keiko Fujimori. And it's quite clear this has become a class battle. The workers, the poor, the peasants, the indigenous are voting for Pedro Castillo, while the, the, the oligarchy and the rich and the wealthy uh, putting their weight behind uh, Keiko Fujimori, even though some of them might not particularly like like her. So this is very interesting. Uh, the, the, the oligarchy, the, the business owners, have uh, put up billboards in Lima saying uh, socialism is poverty, communism is disaster, is violence, socialism leads to communism. So they're basically saying that this guy is a communist, this guy is linked to the shining path, uh, terrorist guerrillas and this and that. And this is having no impact on the electorate. The, the people are completely disregarding these allegations, these unfunded, uh, founded allegations. And they are voting for him because they want fundamental change. Now, we, we don't know what's going to happen in the election. If all goes as, as the opinion polls say at this point, he will win by a substantial majority. Pedro Castillo will win. He will be uh, the next president of Peru. And then if he tries to implement his program of renegotiating the, the contracts with the multi mining multinationals, he will find fierce opposition. We have seen this before. You, you mentioned Chavez at the beginning of the conversation. I mean, Chavez was overthrown by a coup in 2002 when he attempted to carry out a mild uh, agrarian reform. The same thing will happen to Pedro Castillo. They will try to overthrow him. Uh, the U.S. Embassy will be very active trying to prevent him from being elected. And if they can't overthrow him, they will try to moderate his uh, program. They will try to curtail his freedom of action. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, there's any number of things that they can uh, try, but this is very interesting uh, process in a country like uh, Peru. After many years where the left was demonized, now we see the emergence of, of someone who, who leads a party that calls itself Marxist getting 40 percent in the opinion polls. I think this is very significant. Uh, it goes beyond his actual program. It just tells you that people want fundamental change.
not only in Peru, but uh, in Colombia, in, uh, in uh, everywhere, in Brazil, in Chile, and, and so on. I, I wonder if you could touch for a moment on you know the recent demonstrations in Colombia as well, because as you point out, not only are we hungry for change, but we want... Uh, change that comes with dignity, you know what I mean, that comes with less hunger for people. Yes, I mean, the, the situation in Colombia is also very, very interesting. I mean, you, you have followed Latin America yourself. I have followed Latin America for many years. And uh, on the face of it, Colombia is perhaps the last country where you would expect a mass movement, because this is a country that uh, is very heavily under the domination of the oligarchy. And although formally there is a bourgeois democracy, people can vote every five years or so, uh, and there are, there are freedom of speech and there's freedom of trade union organization. In practice, this doesn't really exist. This is an oligarchy that uses paramilitary gangs. Uh, we're talking about people who go into thugs, who go into villages with uh, chainsaws and start killing people just because they belong to a peasant union, perhaps. Um, hundreds of trade union and social movement leaders have been killed since the peace uh, agreement between the government and the, and the guerrilla. Uh, the, this is the day-to-day -day situation that trade unionists and social movement activists face in, in Colombia. And in this country, with these levels of violence and repression, we see a huge, extraordinary mass movement, which started on the 28th of April as a one-day national stoppage or national strike against the tax reform, which is uh, aimed at making the poor and the middle class pay more taxes while maintaining the exemptions for big businesses and, and wealthy capitalist owners. And so the people started by rejecting that. Now, this movement was then met with brutal repression. Uh, in one week of demonstrations, 37 people have been killed, the big majority of them being killed by, by the actions of the police and the army. Uh, two days into the strike, the, the government sent the army into a number of uh, big cities. For instance, in Cali, where the movement was much uh, larger from the very beginning, the army was sent in. And we've seen scenes of uh, police and the army using firearms against unarmed demonstrators. Completely incredible scenes. Uh, and as I said, 37 people have been confirmed dead by, by this um, human rights NGO called Temblores. But about 900 people have been injured. Uh, dozens of other people have disappeared. No one, no one knows their whereabouts. Uh, people have been uh, assaulted and uh, even sexually assaulted at demonstrations by the police. Uh, and nevertheless, the movement is continuing. is now reached one week, and it doesn't seem to be weakening. The, the government has, of Duque has been forced to withdraw the tax reform, go back to Congress with a new proposal. The Minister of Finance has resigned. Uh, and this hasn't stopped the, the movement. People are still on the streets, and now they, they don't just want the end of the tax reform. They want this government to go. They want the, the health care reform to go. They want the hated riot police, the SMAT, to be disbanded. So this is quite a, quite a, a serious uh, movement. As I say, in a country 
where the ruling class is particularly brutal, vicious, and repressive, and has the full backing of the United States. This is a country where there are seven U.S. military bases. You might remember about Plan Colombia, which was a program of massive funding by the United States of the, of the Colombian military forces. This is one of the strongholds of U.S. imperialism in the region, which has been used for provocations against Venezuela, provocations against Ecuador in the past, and, and so on. And nevertheless, here, the workers, peasants, the, the, the indigenous population, the youth who, who are at the forefront of this movement are fighting back. And at the moment, it seems they are winning. They, they haven't won everything they won. Uh, and they have paid a very high price, but they are on the offensive. And I think that this is very important and very, very um, significant. There have been even instances reported of some rank and file soldiers who sympathize with the demonstrators, who feel un un uneasy about being used to kill their brothers and sisters. Because uh, at the end of the day, the ranks of the Colombian army um, are made up of the sons of, of workers and peasants who live the same conditions. So it's a very dangerous movement, a very dangerous time for the for the Colombian oligarchy, for the government of Duque, and also for Uribe, who is fully behind uh, Duque, who is the one who's, who's moving the threats from behind. Um, so I think it's very, very encouraging, very interesting and very hopeful because if, if the masses can rise up in a country like Colombia, they can and start to win, they can do so anywhere else, really. And this will be an inspiration for, for all the Latin American countries, without a doubt. Thank you so much for not only keeping your pulse, the many challenges we face as workers, but also on uh, bringing us inspiring stories as well. And, and as you point out, sorry, incidentally, Biden hasn't changed his, his policy in relation to Cuba or in relation to Venezuela. All of the sanctions are still in place and there's no indication that they're going to change for now. It was never an illusion, I think, for many Latin Americans that, mm -hmm. you know, the changing governments in the U.S. would let up on the pressure that they put on you know, Latin America, you know, whether it be Honduras, Colombia, or Venezuela, you know, it's, um, however, I, I think that it's really important. As Galeano once said, you know, apathy is not a luxury we can afford ourselves. So what keeps you energized and connected to continue to struggle, to continue to move and create, even within pandemic restrictions and conditions? Yes, I will say that, uh, look, the alternative we have in front of us is uh, socialism or barbarism. This is, this is the phrase that Rosa Luxemburg used over 100 years uh, ago, and I think it's, it's relevant today. We, we see it with the pandemic, with the destruction of the environment, threat to the existence of human life on this planet, uh, and everything that goes uh, around us. Uh, this is the alternative, socialism or barbarism. E either we put an end to this capitalist system based on exploitation, oppression, depredation of the environment and so on, or, or the future is very bleak. And so there's no other alternative. But at, at the same time, the, these conditions are creating uh, massive resistance. I, I feel completely inspired by the uprising of the Ecuadorian uh, workers and peasants in 2019 
the massive estallido, the, 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 the mass movement of the Chilean workers and youth in 2019, they, they basically proved that in many cases, without a very clear leadership at the head, that they do not want to live anymore in the old ways. And they prepared to come out on the streets and risk their lives, basically, uh, in order to improve their conditions. Uh, and now the movement in, in Colombia is also enormously inspiring. I mean, as I said, 37 people have died and still people are coming out. Uh, because they they've had enough they and they want something better and this something better is not beyond reach is it is possible as as pedro castillo says in peru uh, peru is a rich country uh, but there are a lot of poor people because this wealth is not in the hands of the majority so this is what's uh, inspiring not not only the need the absolute need to to transform the situation but the fact that uh, the masses have proven on many occasions that this is possible, that they have the resilience, that they have the determination to change and they have the power when, when the masses come out on the streets, everything stops. Uh, in, in the United States, the Black Lives Matter movement was also extremely inspiring. This movement was, was on a bigger scale than the civil rights movement in the 1960s in terms of the number of people involved. Uh, this is really inspiring. This is a new world that we're trying to build rising from the ashes of the old uh, crumbling capitalist uh, system. Uh, and this is absolutely necessary. Thank you again for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, it was my pleasure as always. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an education consultant and artist, authored. For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylvierichardson.com. Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you.